This is Milton, and welcome to the Cannabis Business Podcast. Uh, this is Rena Rampersad. Rena started in Windsor, uh, where she had Rampersad hot and spicy roti. But from there, you moved on to doing a little bit more with cannabis and events. You were recognized uh, from Now Magazine as one of the up-and-coming entrepreneurs who was, let's just say, uh, non-Caucasian. You know, there's not that many minorities who uh, get get this step forward and are seen. So it's just interesting to know that you're being put on that a stage recognized. It's nice to see brown people being recognized. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Additional thing to mention about Rena is that she has a long history with cannabis, particularly with her family, going back to her father in the 1970s. Rena is from the Caribbean, uh, Trinidad in particular. Through her father and her family, she was exposed to cannabis. One of the stories she may tell is about her grandmother creating a cream that helped with uh, healing using cannabis. I know uh, this is an opportunity for Rena to tell us a little bit more about who she is. Sure. So I'm the owner-operator of a catering company, actually a regular Caribbean restaurant catering company, but also a cannabis catering company as well, which really, because of regulations, operates more like a hobby club right now. Um, but it's something that I intend on, uh, you know, creating in its full entirety once they allow us to be able to do so. As you were mentioning, I did grow up around cannabis. My grandmother utilized cannabis. My father used cannabis. Uh, you know, from a young age, I noticed that there was a difference in people who drank versus people who smoked, and that was very real. My grandmother used to make salves out of cannabis as well, and I remember specifically this one time when I sprained my ankle, and she asked my dad for some of his herb, and then she cooked it on the stove for a long time, and then wrapped it around my ankle with a scarf, and I remember thinking it was gross, <laughs> but... I went to sleep and I woke up walking the next day and I'd had enough sprained ankles to know that there was something to that. You know, it was uh, pretty amazing to even me, uh, but uh, I didn't really know it was cannabis or, you know, what cannabis really was until I guess uh, my early teenage years when, you know, you start hearing talk about it and you start questioning things and, and seeking outside of yourself. And uh, yeah, you know, one thing led to another. I, I, I did kind of, I don't want to say fell off cannabis, but, um, you know, I, I stopped using for some time because I was a social worker in the States and they used to test, they used to test my urine <laughs> every six months. And sometimes it was just sporadically. And, um, you know, obviously that's like the last thing I needed to think about. So I stopped for a while. And then once I left the career, I, I pretty much took it back up, uh, you know, even as a social worker, I could see that professionally, this thing was never an issue. If anything, it, it helped to bring families together is what I witnessed. And uh, the majority of families that were in care were there for alcohol and pills and other things that were fully and completely legal. It was rarely or I only saw cannabis on the records after a long list of other drugs. Usually when I create these podcasts, I want to write a, an article, a little blog. Long story short, last time we spoke, you talked about people of color and you used the word uh, privilege. I know sometimes in my own experiences, you kind of want to be neutral to make sure that we get our voice to as many people as we can. I wrote an article that I'm publishing in, I hope to publish in a newspaper that has to do with amnesty 
asking the question about people of color. Lyft uh, recently had their uh, award ceremony. Talking about privilege, <laughs> did you hear how the tables were $10,000 a piece? Your average Joe cannot attend. A lot of the people who were even nominated and some of even the winners were not able to attend. So I don't know who those awards were really intended for. <laughs> wow. That's an incredible huge amount of money. You know, when, I'm not trying to put Lyft down because I can't. You know, I, I look at that, uh, the, the pictures at Lyft. Really, I'm grateful and happy that people attended and they, they got something from it. But at the same time, a couple of days later, there was also a Leaf Forward. They announced that they've uh, accepted certain people to join, right? And again, they sent a picture out and it was a nice picture. But, you know, growing up as a kid, I'd see pictures uh, on uh, ads or even on TV, right? And growing up as a kid, there there just wasn't any people of color in any of the things, oh, right? Absolutely. I talk about that all the time, and especially, and it's funny that you say this. This is, you know, it's too bad. Like, this conversation's kind of gone away for a bit and has resurfaced in the last, you know, five-ish years because of all of the stuff that's kind of exploded around. It's almost like a time capsule of history's blight was uncovered, and, you know, all the white supremacists have come back out and full-fledged flavor and the misogynists and sexists and xenophobes like literally just out of the woodwork so yeah it's uh it's good for us to to talk about that again and that's very important it's funny you say that because absolutely as a person of color growing up I was at a, a conference uh just earlier this week and one of the things I talked about was the fact that when I was young I used to ask my mom questions like how come there aren't people that look like me on tv or, you know, watching the soap operas, how come only white people date white people? Or how come only black people date black people? And white people don't seem to have black friends and vice versa. What, what was that? I didn't, you know, I didn't understand why it was so segregated and why we were so unrepresented on TV. Like society doesn't recognize how much of an impact that has on your self-image and, and sense of self-worth if you're not included in everything that they actualized in a visual format then you know how can you see yourself as included and inclusive and a, a valuable part of the conversation and and society right yeah so it, it has an effect and sorry to go off on a tiny tangent here but this is such a passionate subject for me and we can't be apologetic about calling people on it either because we've been way too kind and way too uh, complacent about things really honestly a girlfriend of mine is out in Ghana right now Ghana Africa and she just did a small video piece on the fact that she went to toy stores she took like some of her little friends and cousins to uh, go shopping for dolls and toys and was very disappointed that in the middle of Accra Ghana Africa where the population is 95 percent of African descent and therefore visibly uh, these are people of color there were virtually no brown dolls to be found anywhere no brown toys no brown storybooks and she's like you know okay if I was in England maybe but even then it's not acceptable but she's like in Ghana definitely not that just shows you how much you know, the ideals and images that we were fed have really permeated us to where we've even excluded ourselves. There's a lot of layers to history. One of the layers I want to suggest is it's not on purpose. And I, I don't mean it the way it sounds. I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah. In some cases where people, uh, 
people absolutely forget about you. It's like I'm a man, right? And for whatever reason, I might never think a woman wants to play video games. And so I just never think of things, right? So I'm not exposed to like other people in some way. So I just, it's not purposeful. But the other way of looking at it is economics can play a role in this. Like, you know, if, if your average income or even, and when I, when I talk about what I'm talking about, I'm actually also talking about Aboriginal people in Canada. Right, our indigenous, like the indigenous population is very, uh, gosh, <laughs> you know, we've been slighted, but to destroy an entire culture, wow. That's Sorry. kind of uh, that's kind of what I wrote the article. It was uh, the premise wasn't, I mean, the thesis wasn't this, but it kind of was. It's like, why aren't there more black people, and why aren't there more Aboriginal people? And to be honest, I'm going to say why more aren't there? brown people in general. Yeah, why or, aren't there? But it ended up where I, I kind of explored that something that been prevented us, and namely, uh, I guess when you have lower incomes and the police incarceration rate. Oh yeah, big time. We're, we're profiled. Uh, so the stats on that are that people of color are actually arrested and charged uh, on a national average. Some provinces are three times, some are two times the amount. Some provinces are as much as seven times the amount as white people to be charged with uh, drug-related offenses for the same offense as their, their white counterparts. And, and, and they're charged and white yeah. people are not. Uh, as well, um, women of color and indigenous women make up almost 30% of the prison population. And again, the charges are mostly drug-related. What does that say? No, they're not targeting people at all. <laughs> you know, those laws that they created, those false laws they created were not slighted at certain people at all. Mm -mm. Some people might want to say, you know, hey, maybe these communities actually do more crimes. But the real story is if police yeah. stop and they ask you questions, but if they stop a person of color, they're more likely to actually charge them. It's true. Uh, it's not yeah. that, and I'll even say it another way. The other communities, quote unquote, the white community or European descent community, whatever you may want to call them, they actually do more crime. And yeah. in the sense that there's more of them. But it turns out mm -hmm. when it comes to actually arresting and charging, putting people in jail, you know, there's a higher likelihood if you're a black person in Halifax or an Aboriginal person in Regina, you've got a much higher. Oh, chance. yeah, Halifax. This is kind of the article that I wrote. But I didn't it, yeah, it. I can't wait to read it. But ultimately, the conclusion wasn't, hey, let's blame and let's start thinking about what's wrong. I, I, I tried to look at the California model. They have an equity program there. Yeah, the equity permit program. Yep. Have, you, have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, as, as the volunteer coordinator for Can Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty, uh, I, I don't know how much we talked about it last time, but Anna Maria Anna Nager, she's a a civil lawyer and a uh, social justice activist and she's been an activist her whole life for various very important causes but she recognized herself she's not even a cannabis smoker she recognized how gosh how discriminatory and just how predatory and uh, honestly just plainly how racist the laws were how racist the cannabis laws were they i mean plain and simply they were put in place to keep certain people uh you know in check in a certain way they wanted to control a certain portion of the population and it worked very well so you know it's really uh disheartening and it's disconcerting that now our government and science has recognized and acknowledged that 
we were wrong or they were wrong and there actually are incredible benefits and and now that we need to um you know that they've discovered this we need to acknowledge it and and make it accessible to everybody and you know kind of start that shift in society if you will you know that that shift but while it's not <laughs> so anyways it's been predicted to become the biggest and most influential industry in our time and it has the ability to tremendously impact society and it's already made the government billions of dollars or these companies that are involved have already made billions that they're you know slotted to make billions they already have this has been happening for some time and they were able to you know exponentiate their their growth recently because of all of the things that have been happening um so it's just it's obviously completely hypocritical for our government now to be earning billions and eventually it's going to be more than that when there are still people doing the time and paying the price for creating this industry for them and creating the demand like that is it's so wrong beyond words and when you look at the numbers and the figures at who has been the most affected it's really it's actually pretty sickening it to me it's it's incredible that more people are not aware and that more people don't care who cares if you don't smoke weed do you not see that this was like the one of the biggest most racist laws that we've had and the government still continuing it really like um legalization is you know i i'm happy that we've gotten there and that allows me to be able to smoke a joint and walk down the street but they added 84 amendments initially so you know we're looking at a lot more penalization actually things are actually more punitive now and i'm just going to say to everybody protect yourself go get your medical card because you can because that will at least uh protect you from a lot of the the new laws that surround recreational use okay so go and do that because in my opinion almost everybody who uses cannabis even recreationally is using it somewhat therapeutically and medicinally anyways even if you don't want it to do anything good for you it's connecting with your endocannabinoid system and it's it's writing something <laughs> you know it, it just is you know for as, as little as it, as it might count it's it's doing a even even an inkling of good for you sorry i didn't even touch on uh what we're doing at cannabis uh, campaign for cannabis amnesty so we're actually asking for expungements the government did respond in stating that they're going to give uh pardons and this was all as a result of the efforts that we've been putting forth all year cuz uh Anna Maria and a lot of my colleagues have literally been on the doorsteps of parliament uh many days they're flying in and out of Ottawa meeting with various MPs um and senators and you know they've drafted legislation in fact uh this Friday the announcement's going to be made MP Murray Rankin is going to be presenting bill 415 which he drafted in coordination with um Cannabis Amnesty's participation which is asking for expungements over pardons the government um initially Goodale said that he didn't see cannabis prohibition as a profound enough injustice of the past to warrant uh granting expungements which is ridiculous um because pardons count just as much as a regular conviction uh you know on your record for you know jobs uh travel you name it 
it, it really doesn't make much of a difference. And even though people are not supposed to make that judgment call, the reality is it stays on your record. So people are still going to see it. Um, the only thing that's changed is that the waiting period is supposed to be shorter and it's supposed to be free now but it still doesn't do anything. It honestly makes the government look really good because it sounds like, oh yeah, you know, they're doing something nice. They're pardoning people. Really look at what that means. So Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty is made up of quite a few lawyers and they basically uh, advise that it, it, it's just another word for record suspension, uh, which means nothing. So expungement means wiping it off the record to give people a clean slate because if we're saying it's no longer a criminal behavior, why are they still being treated like criminals? You know, and uh, in addition, we're asking for, we're looking at eventually coming forth and asking for uh, some sort of an income equity program, which, sorry, equity permit program, which is exactly what they have in California, which basically says, uh, slot a certain percentage of the regulation permits or, uh, you know, like dispensary permits or store permits, uh, if you will, uh, specifically to marginalized and or con uh, marginalized communities and or those who have been previously convicted so that those who are and have paid the price are getting um you know i don't want to say preferential treatment but if you dare say like a slice of reparations to some degree you know you get a little piece of your pie and i a thousand percent agree with that because i think we talked about this the last time where um I used to be a social worker and it, I liken it to almost uh, affirmative action, you know, that forces people to hire folks like myself, you know, yeah. <laughs> and when I was working in the States, um, you know, I had many employers that admitted to me because I, I worked for a social work program where I helped young people find jobs and I connected them with resources. And some of these employers admitted that if it wasn't for affirmative action, they might not have gone outside of their, you know, their comfort zone. And they might not have hired, you know, uh, a, a young girl from, you know, the ghetto in Detroit, you know, or, you know, made any assumptions about this person because this is where they came from or look like that or what have you, which happens all the time. As much as people don't want to admit it, let's be real. It's, you know, it's been happening. That's why we're all out here going, okay, enough is enough. <laughs> yeah. You know? The thing about the experience of the op-ed was, um, I, I don't know. It, it Did just, you say it was for Globe? Yeah. Globe, Globe. okay. You should look up uh, another Globe and Mail editor, journalist. I don't know if she's freelance or not, but she's someone else who covers uh, topics of this nature. Her name is Denise Balkasoon, and she actually covered an event that uh, I was at a few months ago. She wrote an awesome article called, Do Women Really Need Their Own Weed? premise of the article was she talked about people of color not being included in the industry specifically women of color not being invited to the table and the conversations and uh, very interesting awesome article it was a great article you should totally contact her she actually was looking to liaise with uh, you know other uh, cannabis um, journalists yeah. and you know specifically you know from the BIPOC community by the BIPOC community Mm -hmm. what, what's that mean so BIPOC and you know and I know oh, that POC. yes 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 so uh black indigenous people of color so it encompasses you know all of us everybody you know like even uh, there are a lot of Asians who don't identify 
um, as being Asian per se, as they do identify as being ethnic and, you know, would like to be included in that definition. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people we forget sometimes. You know, as a dark-skinned fellow myself, it's interesting to compare it to Aboriginal people. And I contacted an Aboriginal friend of mine. We discussed perspectives, and he helped me with reading the article that I'm, I'm sending. But oh, yeah. What's interesting was when you're Black or when you're Aboriginal, uh, there is a stigma from within your own community using marijuana. So it ended up that a lot of Black people didn't use a lot of marijuana because they didn't want to be uh, yeah, totally. disproportionately arrested. Penalized. Yeah, because it's it's harder on us, right? Like we don't we don't get the passes and and the Justin Trudeau, you know, friend of the family wave off, you know. We we're not lucky enough to get that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. some of us were not lucky enough to make it out of the situation and circumstance in and of itself. You know, sadly, I know people who have been lost to the war on drugs because their car smelled like cannabis and they were pulled over by the police and these white police decided to pull a gun and shoot a black teen. You know, that happened when I was growing up. So, you know, and I, and I know other people who have lost their lives, you know, directly or indirectly to, you know, due to all this intimidation and, and bullcrap. It's, yeah, it's it's really disappointing, actually. He, he himself, the uh, Aboriginal person I was talking about, uh, he actually said there's a lot of people in the Aboriginal community who are anti-marijuana, uh, especially recreational. And he himself doesn't use marijuana, um, but he understands its benefits. I'm not a Caribbean person, but uh, mm-hmm. I've met uh, at least well one African and one Caribbean woman who who understand the benefits, but they've never tried it, and in a sense, they never want to either. They just can't imagine losing your uh, mm-hmm. yourself to it in some way. Uh, to, to me, that's sad, um, and and actually, that's the case uh, that's happening in Trinidad right now. And you look at the Caribbean, the more progressive countries are moving forward and embracing it and they're legalizing and they're going to see a change in their economy and they're going to see a change in their in their society too. Uh, unfortunately, Trinidad was not a country that, that embraced it. And sadly enough, alcohol and cocaine totally took over and it really did. And you can see it. You can see the effects. You go there and you look like you're doing well enough. You're going to get kidnapped, unfortunately. And I, I'm not just saying that, you know, if you look at any of the news, what's happening down there right now, there's there's a lot that's really, uh, gosh, you know, I, I, I really hurt for Trinidad right now. There's, there's a lot that needs to be remedied and, and fixed. It's a wonderful place. You can go and visit, you know, during carnival and everything. But the fact that they didn't embrace cannabis really has an impact on them. And um, <laughs> some white guys, <laughs> strain hunters, went down there and they did a documentary on it with Vice News. And they compared Trinidad to, say, St. Thomas. St. Thomas and the uh, St. Vincent who are legalizing cannabis and have embraced it and how that's changed their economy overall. And they don't have any major issues with drug addicts or crime and, and tourism has increased because of that. Like just, you see all of the, the dramatic effects of it, right. And how it, it literally like remedies and fixes a society versus, you know, sadly Trinidad bought into all of the negative negative stereotypes and stigma. And as you say that, in my own family, oh my gosh, so I was lucky enough to grow up with my dad being, you know, a strong cannabis advocate. 
but believe it or not, my mom bought into, you know, the whole reefer madness and, oh, no, no, that's for bums. And, you know, you turn into a criminal and this, that, and the other, and sophisticated people drink wine. Well, you know, sadly, that was to her demise, actually. Uh, you know, and I seen lots of people perish from alcohol. Lots of people perish from alcohol. <laughs> you know, we know that no one to date has perished from cannabis use. And that's, I don't know of anything out there they could say that's true about because you even die from drinking too much Coca-Cola, you know, or uh, too much aspirin or, you know, literally <laughs> there are things that are completely legal and have been for centuries that will kill us. But, you know, we're focused on cannabis, which is healing. So there's obviously some, some motive and propaganda behind that. You saw what, oh my God, I'm sure you've read what the, you know, what, what the Harry uh, Anslinger said that helped to create all that reefer madness, how racist that statement was. But just getting back to what you were saying. Um, yeah. And in the Indian community too, here's the thing that really like burns me. If people would look back in their history, they'd see how long it's been a part of all of us, all of us, all of us, um, you know, Hindus use it uh, as part of sacrament and the sadhus in India, you know, this is what helps them achieve the, the highest enlightenment. And, you know, it's like no bones about it. And these guys look like Rastas. They have big dreadlocks, you know, wrapped up in big buns. They have beautiful face paintings and literally are wearing nothing but a loincloth and smoking a giant thing like this. And, you know, these are like the most enlightened people and they're doing yoga all day and, and praying all day and just, you know, living a, a very spiritually fulfilled life. And cannabis is, you know, they're you know, their, their big uh, channel, if you will, to, to that spirituality. So this is, it's actually been a part of society for a long time. And then bong, right? The, the drink bong has been a part of society for a long time as well. Um, it, it, again, it's, it's about buying into, I'm just going to say this way, buying into colonialism and all that brainwashing and all of that, you know, um, they've, brainwashed us and told us that it wasn't good for us and that we would turn it into this if we did this and this is what happened and again when you just look at the history of it it's it's you know I wish I could say it's disputable but it's very well documented how racist and intentional the prohibition of cannabis was and and the key to all of this is educating our people you know and and whenever I have people who are so opposed to it and whatever I I ask them do they know the history of prohibition and, you know, sometimes they'll say yes or no. And I'll ask them, you know, do you, do you condone racism? Do you like, are you against racism? Like what, what do you think about racism? They'll be like, oh yeah, you know, it's bullshit and blah, blah, blah. And whatever. Da, da, da. Like, are you aware that the roots of cannabis history, the history of prohibition was actually very intrinsically racist. And they're like, no. And I'm like, are you aware that by supporting the ideals that came out of all the reefer madness, you're actually kind of indirectly, well, actually, in my opinion, directly supporting racist ideals because you are uh you know when you really look into it and i challenge people that way i do you know even if you're not uh, a consumer yourself how can you deny the facts because it's tied to a certain group of people and they've taught us those people are bad and you have to recognize that was all a lie it was all a lie and when people recognize that they wouldn't dare support it anymore even if it's not something they want to engage in you know, they, they could say, well, you know, I see it benefits other people. Science says that it, it does good. It's just not something I, I choose to engage in. But, you know, to continue to support the other ideals is, 
that ain't cool. <laughs> that is that is continuing to support and encourage, uh, you know, like I said, ideals that came from nothing but colonialism, colonial thoughts. You know, that whole, you know, we're going to take you and make you think this way and stop you from doing this because we think that's bad. We don't care what you think. And, you know, it's it's all part of it. You know, I got to say that history is a very multi-layered thing. Uh, you know, even part of that Anseling story, he, there was a murder that happened. Did you hear about the Italian guy? No, it's the murder part. The story goes, there was this Italian guy, I think he was 19, who killed his entire family. They, oh, my God. His sister, his mom. And, and let me guess, he was on cannabis. No, the story, he wasn't at all on cannabis. Okay. <laughs> but the story goes, he was on cannabis. So they put that into reports and they put it into the press. <laughs> and Anslinger jumped all over that and, and started to... <sighs> You know, in the press in the good old days, in the 19, I think this was the 30s, uh, loved to just making stories up, right? So the whole country was scared. And there was no way to fact check anything, right? How do you fact check anything? And and by the same token, that time was, uh, you know, race was, uh, it was already understood that white people did this, black people did that. And so, you know, that, I mean, I'm saying it was, it came out of a time pre-World War II. Uh, you know, at that time, Nazis were getting their start. And uh, and Anslinger's report had to do with, like, there would be race mixing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thing. no, and not just race mixing. The way that he said it. It was so disgusting, you know. And, and can you imagine, you know, I, I keep going back to this. This is so funny. So, like, a few years ago, National Geographic published a cover page. I don't know if you ever saw it. And it had... Uh, portraits of about 40 50 thumbnails of people and it said this will be america in 2042 and every person was of a mixed race and i said this is going to cause a rise in white supremacy there are people who will not have this they're going to be afraid it's fear of a black a fear in fear of a black planet (laughs) very true and so going back to what you said that's literally what it was (laughs) they were afraid oh my god Black men might actually get with white women. Oh my God, it's gonna make Mexicans, you know, want white women, or white women are gonna want to want Mexicans, and you know, all this. Part of the solution is sort of like we have in Canada or anywhere in the world. Like I'm in a French-speaking area. If you meet someone who's French, you get to understand issues related to Quebec or French, or if you're English, the other way. You know, French people also do need to meet English people because there are plenty of places in Quebec where people don't speak any English, right? So oh, yeah. You kind, of, kind of demonize the other. But when you actually get to yeah. meet them, you become friends and you see they're human beings just like you. Yeah. Yes, you're in a very interesting territory. I will say my husband is a French Canadian and his family is from all over in Quebec. And his family's wonderful. They're amazing folks. But uh, I've definitely encountered people that were maybe not as nice on the way to certain places and, and ways back, <laughs> if you will, and certain attitudes. And and it's really strange. I have to admit, like when uh, we go to visit, we're almost apologetic for our cannabis use and have to, you know, really be covert with it and kind of hide and run away. And the whole family's like, oh, oh, oh there they go again. <laughs> you know, like It's just, I don't know. It's hard for me to get used to when I come from, you know, a, a family that even if they don't do it themselves, that doesn't exist. Why would you do that to somebody, first of all? And second of all, do you know what you're talking about? Well, this <laughs> you know? kind of is a good opportunity for me to segue into talking about the Toronto community. 
I had a conversation with a friend of mine here in Montreal, and I, I've been somewhat yeah. involved in the cannabis community. Like I've traveled to Toronto. Uh, I know a little bit what's happening in British Columbia, and I, I keep yeah. the news. That's and I'm, good. I'm really interested in knowing about you know Canada's data. It's, it's like consumer data, like what's happening around the country kind of stuff. But uh, he said this to me, and I, I take it for granted, but I was surprised that he didn't know this, right? He's come to realize that Toronto, or at least what's happening in Ontario, is fast becoming a new identity for cannabis in the community in Canada in this way. Like, you know how British Columbia is known for cannabis? Yeah, Toronto's taking over. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to explain to him my thinking of why that is, is because yeah. you guys jumped all over it a little bit early and you have a lot of big companies that have uh, venture capitalists and other people. But we, just so you yeah. know, we do not have that here in Montreal. We have yeah. pockets which has got to make it tough. I, I was there in July and I remember speaking to uh, the owner of a head shop on St. Catherine and he was telling me that, yeah, things are still very much underground and very, you know, covert and what have you. Like I have a couple of friends who are in the industry, you know, the gray industry, if you will, out there and they do have events and they've invited us and encouraged us to come out and participate and everything it's just a little distance and we were booked so we couldn't come anyways but all of their events are private you know they can't be very open about everything they have to be very savvy with the way they market everything and they you know just like everybody they operate on a fine line but it's it's even more of a risk from what i understand well back in july uh, it was kind of interesting the statistics were going something like this in quebec the uh, arrests were going up for cannabis, while the rest no. of Canada, it was going down. <laughs> That's, yeah, that says it there, right? The fact that um, the province has not embraced, uh, you know, retail stores overall, the entire province has chosen to opt out of that. Really? Like, you're that dead set against making money because you have that much of an issue with cannabis? Like, what are the things that cannabis are usually associated with? Usually it's, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, not to make the direct link there, but, you know, the reality is there is a direct link. And, you know, any of the cities who are choosing to opt out in Ontario, you know, do you want to make the assumption they're more racist cities or, or less inclusive? That might actually be the case. I, I will suggest there's always a concern, <laughs> even in the Aboriginal community. This is a different topic, but I'm just trying to say is that they see there's a danger with cannabis for some people. In the Aboriginal community, they have a high suicide rate, and they see uh, addiction as part of the problem. And they, they put it all And that's together. an education thing. Yeah, that's, and it's sad. And, and I do, I have heard that, but that's, that's an education thing of us spending time and educating, you know, having substance abuse counselors, because I also have substance abuse training, um, substance abuse counseling to teach them that it actually helps to curb, uh, you know, a lot of the cravings for the, the harsher, uh, har more harmful and impactful drugs. It actually helps to wean people off. And I'm sure you've heard of the success with it, uh, you know, weaning people off of opioids and, and fentanyl and that kind of stuff and, and how many lives it's actually saved. So it's, it's actually, unfortunately, just the opposite and helps, um, helps to alleviate depression. There are many strains that, uh, you know, help to regulate that. So that would actually help to decrease the likelihood of someone becoming suicidal. Um, you know, so again, it's, 
it's it's sad and unfortunate because when you hear the reasons that people present for not wanting it in their society or keeping it at arm's length, it's unfortunately based on a lot of myths. You know, it would be different if, if people said, well, you know, it doesn't jive with our culture. It's not a part of who we are and what have you. But a lot of my indigenous friends are saying it actually is. You know, it's it's been a part of, of usage for a very long time. It's been a part of, you know, if you will, the indigenous medicine wheel almanac or something of that nature. Maybe it wasn't something that people used recreationally daily, but it had a, a place in their culture. And it was erased because it was erased from everything. And, uh, you know, most of everything has been washed out. Uh, but, yeah, I have some friends, uh, you know, in a, a few territories. and And thankfully... A lot of the, uh, so for instance, near me where I live, Six Nations originally had made a statement that they didn't want it in their community either. But I believe that, um, you know, maybe some of uh, the Bound Council had um, maybe met or counseled with, you know, other individuals or individuals within the community who were much more knowledgeable and could show them, you know, in fact, you know, not only how this was all wrong and how it could actually benefit our body, but how it could help them to rebuild an entire uh, community's economy from within and really gain that power. Because unfortunately in this society, it seems that, you know, a lot of the power is held by uh, wealth. Power and wealth seem to be very closely linked. And, and if you can empower your society and your, your community economically, that changes everything. So there are so many more um, advantages to this besides the fact that, Spiritually, it was a part of most of our cultures until that got erased. Um, so getting back to my story, Six Nations has now embraced it. And they are now coming back and saying that, okay, they maybe don't want their youth to participate in it as early. So they're going to change the uh, age gate, their own community, and, uh, and they're going to run their own stores, you know, because you should. You know, this is something that you can do on your land that is not going to have the government's involvement. Why would you not want to do that? They're going to be making millions from it. You know what I mean? This is, it, it creates so much opportunity. And again, like just saying that uh, Six Nations came around too. And um, also, so uh, dare I mention the Mohawk Territory and Tindanaga, who now have the biggest cannabis festival there is uh, organized in Canada as well as the largest dispensary and that was because they decided not to give up on their community who were saying no apparently the band saying no 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 but there are uh, ancestors who override the band council uh, which I was not aware of if you know the ancestral language and you know the written language then you can revert to that language and that overrides actually the band council which was based on and I was told that the band council's laws and principles are based on colonial laws and they're they're actually trying to do away with it in a lot of communities um, I was not aware of this but uh, an indigenous friend advised me and so she is the one who said this is what we are going to do in our community because it empowers us and it used to be part of us until they told us we couldn't have it and we're going to have it back the majority of our community wants to be involved, and this is what we're going to do because we can do it according to our tradition and our ancestors. And they did it, and they're doing it, and they're expanding, and they're doing very well, and they're so glad that they stuck to their roots, and they, they, they sought and, um, you know, searched deeper and, uh, you know, connected with whom they truly are and overrode all of that. So I say it's just a 
that's just a glitch. You know, unfortunately, those who are not embracing it are just in a place where they haven't learned yet, you know, and, and I, that's just how you have to say it, you know, it's when they recognize what they're supporting by supporting those prohibitive type ideals, I think that they would no longer support that. About a week ago, I went to a public forum, or it was a discussion forum, really, just a small group of people from different places. They wanted to hear what uh, we thought about government rollout. A lot of people just don't know things, and they come across with a lot of their own beliefs. I think, really, it's a failure of provincial and maybe local, but maybe federal at the same time, of not getting more messages out or information out. Uh, I don't know why people don't know what CBD is by now, uh, but uh, it, it comes to a surprise to a lot of people that there's something called CBD out there. Yeah. And even the thing you mentioned about the gateway out drug, people in the old days associated addiction with, I don't know, I'm going to do cocaine as soon as I do marijuana or I'm going to keep mm -hmm. drinking. Or, but there's actually a cabal of issues that cause a person to be an addict. And the wide majority of us who use whatever, including alcohol, don't become addicts because, quote, unquote, I haven't been sexually abused. I haven't had a trauma. Uh, I don't have mental health issues that are particular for something. And even if, if and here's another way of saying it, the way I think you said it earlier, we self-prescribe. I know we have endocannabinoids that naturally need replenishing. Uh, but sometimes when we're depressed or we suffer from anxiety or other issues, we don't know it. but we do feel better from it, right? I'm not saying this thing replaces the possibility of getting help elsewhere, but it's it's one of those little bridges that helps you uh, overcome whatever it is. The more people are educated, and unfortunately, that's the real problem, is there isn't it's anything education. happening out there that gets them to be more informed. That's the barrier, is education. And, you know, I... I I'm just going to say it like it is, you know, it's honestly to the government's advantage for people to be less educated, right? Because you can sell them what you want and, and they're going to believe whatever you feed them. Um, you know, this might be why they put so many restrictions on, you know, education or, you know, initially they didn't want people to educate, you know, others or what have you. You have to have, well, you know, granted, I agree, you should be certified and know what you're talking about before you tell other people. Uh, but there are a lot of people who know exactly what they're saying. You know, there are a lot of really well-read people in the cannabis community because, you know, when you're you're kind of the underdog and you're always being challenged, you kind of got to know what you're talking about. You know, you, you can't just come up with whatever's in your pocket to, uh, you know, to combat people. You, you've got to, you got to have something, you know, that's, that's hearty and, and, you know, that is relevant and, and, and factual and proven. And so most most cannabis consumers I know are, are pretty, pretty well versed. It's usually the folks who don't use cannabis that have no interest in it at all, who demonize it, who have no knowledge about it. And yet they want to dispute you until you're out of breath. But they've never read a book about it. They've never read an article about it. They have no idea about it. You know, Joey, you know, Joey. He used to use cannabis all the time, and he ended up being nothing. Well, you know who else used cannabis? Richard, you know, Mr. Virgin over there, and, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Stephen Hawking and Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein, you know, most of the geniuses that we've ever encountered were cannabis consumers, and 
there's got to be a link there. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect we could probably talk about a variety of subjects a little extra. We can keep talking about this topic. This is a slight change of topic, but you have a yeah. strain you're using right now. Do you want to describe your strain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now I'm smoking something called Bright Moments is a wonderful hybrid actually i i need to look into what the genetics are behind it um i think it might be cush with something but it's a nice balance it's uh, you know it gives you a little bit of a nice relaxing feeling but still very energetic and clear-minded and focused and uh, beautiful flavor you know very tasty buds um yeah, you should give it a try very very nice it's a nice daytime when you're working and doing some stuff bright moments is kind of a, a great way to describe it is there a grower that you want to recognize here i'm not sure if you got it from anyone oh this was actually a friend of mine a craft grower uh you know tell you his first name gary <laughs> but he he did an awesome job and uh yeah he does a uh, a really good um i guess a, a good go with his girls <laughs> that's awesome uh, you know what? I'm going to ask you a little bit about your business just because there are people out there who might want to start uh, a business. And, and before I ask you this question, I have to be clear uh, with anyone who's listening. This is not any advice. And the only advice I can give you is talk to a lawyer. Make sure before you start anything that you're following the law. I understand you work in catering and events and mm -hmm. edibles. I know it's private, so I also know, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but if somebody is going to be starting into this industry, what should they think about? Uh, just like you said, you know, I, I wouldn't advise anybody to just go out and start advertising that they make edibles for this price or what have you, because, you know, that as it is, is illegal. Uh, you know, essentially, like I was mentioning, I, I pretty much operate as a hobby club right now. So, you know, a lot of times my, my customers basically will give me, or I should say my guests will give me their cannabis and I will assist them with turning it into a medium. And then we'll decide on a menu and I provide, uh, you know, the service of putting that into the food for them as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I really am kind of in a, um, you know, a, a position, a predicament, if you will, where I, I'd love to just, you know, run forward and, and, you know, full force and, and operate a fully, you know, a full service restaurant. I would love to do that. I want to invite people in to come in and enjoy my, my menu, the menu that I've been serving for almost the last 10 years, you know, but the infused versions of it, but you know, the unfortunate truth is regulations don't allow me to do that. And I, because of that, my hands are kind of tied, even on the catering end, you know, as much as I would love to do there, I, I'm kind of in waiting, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for all of that to, to happen so that I can go and get a license and officially, you know, begin doing this and make a, an actual company of it and, you know, have a website and, you know, put the sign back up on the door, you know, open and let people in again, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Because right now I just do private dinner parties for my regular restaurant, my regular Caribbean restaurant. You know, thankfully I still have quite a bit going there that keeps the bills paid until, you know, this government figures out what they're doing and how they're going to allow people like me to be involved in this framework that we've helped to build for them really and truly. So uh, yeah, in the interim, I'm, I'm being patient and, and doing little, you know, private events here and there, little unique types of experiences. Every now and again, we'll do a pop-up or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's really, like I said, operating as a hobby club until we're allowed to be a business. How, how close are you with the book that you're working on? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in fact, I've actually, <laughs> I've been putting my recipes on paper for about 10 years, but uh, I've been working on it. I, I, you know, now the push is, of course, the new industry and the fact that people are asking me for my recipes, literally left, right, and center. Uh, I figured I better find some time to dedicate to that. I, I'm hoping that I will be able to have a book out, you know, before the end of next year. But the reality for me, I have to be honest, things are, are incredibly busy. Finding that extra time, you know, when you're supposed to be sleeping, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's hard to do sometimes. Uh, but yeah, it's it's coming. It's definitely coming. A couple of months ago, I decided to do a crock pot version of making an oil. And I wondered if you could give any okay. advice on how, how much uh, cannabis did you use? I don't think I used a lot. Do you know lot. how much cannabis you use? I don't think I used a lot. I think I was naive when I first started. And the, the part of the point of the story was I wasted my marijuana <laughs> on cooking it. How would you uh, advise somebody to think about making their own crockpot version? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, like, so this is honestly the easiest way to self-medicate. And sometimes people will be like, oh, really? That's all? That's what you're going to teach people how to do? But I did it at a, um, you know, like a little resort kind of a event where I taught a, a mini cooking class and there were a couple scientists in the room. They were like, I always advise people to do that. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. You know, because people are always like, why don't you try to make butter or oil or whatever? I can, but for someone who's just starting out, the easiest, easiest, easiest thing to do, honestly, just to decarb your cannabis. That's it, period. Literally 225 degrees in the oven for 45 minutes. It'll turn slightly darker or even a, a light brown slightly. And then it's activated. And you can either put it on top of food or you can literally eat it like that. The only difference is your body metabolizes cannabis um, when you're eating it better paired with a fat. So it slows down the process so you can actually get everything. So, you know, it would be better to sprinkle it on a salad dressing, which has oil in it. Or, you know, I don't know if you're eating like a mac and cheese or something, you know, it's got a cheesy sauce. You can even put it on like a spoon of peanut butter or something. That's honestly the easy way, easiest way. But if you're making uh, a, uh, an oil like what you were doing or a butter, so uh, you don't have to decarb your cannabis if you're using a slow cooker because you're going to be cooking it long enough and slow enough that it will take care of that for you. So if you're doing it in a slow cooker, you're probably using, you know, a minimum one cup of butter. Uh, how much did you use? I swear I can't remember. <laughs> it, was, it was a failure. Was it oil? You. I know you should use coconut oil, but I, I think I used uh, canola oil. So I know. Okay. So how much canola oil do you figure? Do you figure it was like maybe because a, a, a slow cooker could take like six to eight cups of oil. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I know I put a good amount. Was it a big amount or a small amount? I want to say big amount. Big amount. Okay, so so I would recommend, in terms of a ratio, doing approximately one cup, literally, this is going to sound ridiculous here, one cup to one or two grams of cannabis. Um, and one or two grams of cannabis doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, in fact, um, you know, if it is decarbed pr uh, properly, whether through cooking it really slow and long, or whether you decarb it first and then make the medium, you know, you're looking at getting a minimum of about 200 milligrams 
per gram, approximately, approximately, you know, based on how much THC is in that strain and what have you, and how much loss you may have as well, um, approximately 200 milligrams of THC per gram of cannabis. So, uh, you know, if you're putting two grams in a cup of butter, that equates to 400 milligrams approximately in that cup of butter. What does that mean? That means, uh, okay, so let's divide that by four. So 100 milligrams per tablespoon. So you're looking at, yeah, about 25 milligrams per tablespoon, which is actually what I measure most of my sauces at, uh, you know, which can be a little much for some folks. But, you know, if you're infusing stuff, you want to you wanna stay little. So do a teaspoon. A teaspoon would be five milligrams, which is plenty and sufficient. But if you want more sauce, just add some regular sauce. Like if you're using a little bit of infused barbecue sauce, for instance, go and get some non-infused barbecue sauce and just put the dab of the infused sauce, mix it with the non-infused sauce. So you have a lot of sauce that still only has five milligrams in it. Uh, you know, so dilute it, if you will, in a, a non-infused sauce kind of a thing. But uh, that's all I would recommend, you know, in terms of the, the ratio. So if you're doing it in your slow cooker, follow the slow cooker's, um, you know, instructions for low. And you want to cook it for about eight hours in a slow cooker. Some people cook it up to 24 hours in a slow cooker. And then you literally will uh, strain it. And what you have left is your your good product. There are two ways. If you're doing it with butter, then you may have water in the slow cooker. And the water is there to pre help prevent it from burning. I don't know if your cannabis might have sizzled and fried a little bit even in the oil because sometimes in a slow cooker, the oil will get warm enough to go on like a low temperature fry. And that can end up frying your cannabis. And then that's going to, you know, you're still going to get a little bit of an effect from that oil, but it'll be very, very, very mild. Uh, you know, especially if you had a large amount of oil to a very small ratio of cannabis. So you want to take a look at that. So in a slow cooker, if you're cooking approximately six to eight cups, then you want to times your cannabis by the, that amount, right? So if I'm saying two grams for a cup, then for six cups, you're talking about 12 grams, right? So that's for eight cups, about half an ounce, something to that effect. And that should, you know, end up measuring at about 25 milligrams per tablespoon. But, uh, you know, I just advise people to start small, honestly. Uh, like I said, you can decarb some cannabis. If you decarb one gram, that's approximately 200 milligrams. Don't eat the whole thing. Uh, you know, literally take a little teaspoon and sprinkle some on your food. You know, split it up. Know that you have 200 milligrams in that whole thing. So you can split it up and figure out how much is in each portion and just use that portion but pair it with a fat and then vice versa. If you decide to make butter or oil in the slow cooker, you know, the ratio should be about one or two grams per cup for a mild dosage. There are people that are going to hear this. They're going to go, oh my God, that's so weak. I know there are people that literally will put an ounce to a cup and that's fine, but the dosing is extremely high there. And so, you know, you have to be very careful about that. And those, that's usually more so aimed towards medicinal users, which would be absolutely the way to do it because a medicinal user is not going to get what they need from a little microdosed, uh, you know, brownie or whatever. Uh, you know, they need much more to be able to feel that effect, you know. So mm -hmm. I know why I use it. I see it as an opportunity to open up the 
the walls in my mind that normally see barriers for an idea. And then after the idea comes out, I'm actually amazed at how, uh, how it helps me like move forward with whatever I'm, yeah. I'm wanting to work on, like a new idea for how to fix sure. something. Thousand percent. You know what? You were mentioning the creativity thing. That's an absolute truth. So a lot of people have talked about that. And and if you uh, read about the endocannabinoid system and and what and where things connect, apparently uh, where they are found in the brain, one of the areas is the creative um, zone. So there's truth to that. And I know for myself, when I have to create a new menu or come up with new selections or ideas for an event or brainstorm, whatever, no, I just can't do it without cannabis. I can't. Like literally, my creative juices do not flow until I've sat back and I've had a smoke and I'm, I'm able to think, you know, almost abstractly, you know, like you can almost look at things from a third person perspective kind of a thing, which is pretty cool. What's next? Um, anything that people should be aware of? And is there any way people can contact you if they need to? Yeah, so they can find us on Instagram. Feel free to send us a message. Uh, you know, we're still doing stuff in the community. Um, you know, like I said, most of it is uh, a lot of, um, you know, just private events and, and things of that nature. But you know, look out, we're looking at, uh, you know, expanding, essentially, and eventually, eventually becoming an, an actual legal entity. But we also have some side projects that we're working on. So stay tuned. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming out from us in 2019, a lot, a lot of different directions that we're looking at. Uh, you know, the regulations have kind of forced everybody to become uh, a little bit more creative or, or look at some of their other avenues. So uh, I would like to say some exciting things, I think, coming in 2019. But uh, yeah, just stay tuned. Find us on Instagram, High Society Supper Club. Uh, follow us and uh, stay in touch. Thank you so much, Milton. Well, I hope you liked that episode. Uh, this is Milton, and I run UX Big Ideas. And with a good number of other people. I work uh, on digital marketing and websites. So if you know anyone who's interested in the cannabis space uh, that is looking for new ideas, I'm here to provide it. Have a great week and stay uplifted. Yay!